This is Ezekiel 29, please. Now, the past several weeks we've been covering um, various large chunks of Scripture, and we'll be doing so again this evening as we uh, tackle at least these three chapters um, specifically. Excuse me, these four chapters, 29, 30, 31, 32 specifically. But we're also going to be covering not just a lot of ground biblically, but also a great number of years. Six visions we'll look at tonight. Six different time periods spanning 16 years of Ezekiel's life. Now, I hope you brought your outline tonight because it will help you. If not, I'll do my best to explain you through it. The visions that we're going to look at tonight are not compiled by chronology. They are compiled by topic. They deal with one nation, and that nation is the nation of Egypt. But they aren't all in order. Now, if you have that outline, I encourage you to take a look at it. If you don't, there actually is one more on the back table, I believe. And then certainly I can get you one uh, for future reference if you need. Last week, we began looking at the nation of Tyre, and we progressed through that message looking at the prince of Tyre and then the king of Tyre, who we established to be Satan. And as we looked at that message, we saw how much uh, Satan and the, the prince of Tyre and the city, the nation, or the city of Tyre, excuse me, were, was rooted in pride. Now, we're going to see pride again this evening, as all sin in one form or fashion is indeed rooted in pride. The nation of Tyre was unwilling to support the nation of Israel. They were eager for their own glory. And because of that sin, they were destroyed at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. But we're going to learn some other lessons tonight from God's words against the nation of, Israel, or of Egypt. Excuse me. Recall last time we mentioned that the previous prophecy, the last one that we looked at, was out of chronological order. The prophecy of chapters 26 through 29 occur two months after the prophecy, or excuse me, 26 through 28 occur two months after the prophecy of uh, 29, of Ezekiel 29. And so we see as we step into Ezekiel 29, verse 1, scriptures tell us, in the tenth year, in the tenth month, in the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... So we have our time period here, the 10th year, the 10th month, the 12th day of the month. Our first prophecy details the overthrow of the nation of Egypt. Now we've already learned several things about the nation of Egypt from prophecy. Way back in Ezekiel 18, we saw Israel having been planted like a creeping vine, recall. Do you remember that? And that vine was under the great colorful eagle. And as the prophecy continued, the scripture said that the vine angled its branches or angled its vines toward a second eagle. And that second eagle, one not nearly as grand, not one nearly as powerful, was the nation of Egypt. Lesser in beauty, lesser in glory but still one of strength. We talked about that and recognized that it, uh, Egypt had been an accessory to Israel's rebellion through those final years of their existence. 
King Zedekiah was the king at the time, and, and Egypt would play a part in rebelling, in his rebellion against the God-ordained authorities of Babylon. And for this, Egypt would be judged. Now, the next several prophecies, spanning chapters 29 through 32, catalog this judgment. And in chapter 29... Verse 2, he says, Son of man, set thy face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. The Nile River at that time in history, and really through all of Egypt's history, was the lifeblood of of the nation. This river comprised not only their livelihood, but also a large part of their religious system. They believed Pharaoh to be their God, surrounded and supported by other gods, all centered upon the life and fertility that was provided by the Nile River. This is why many of the plagues in Egypt were so devastating, because as God allowed each one of these plagues to come to pass, these plagues were actually um, attacks on Egypt's gods, false gods, by the true and living God. As we saw the frogs come up out of the river, as we saw the river that was turned to blood, the, the sun was darkened, all of these being the gods of Egypt that were being challenged and defeated by Jehovah God. Now God tells this nation that he will cause them a nation that thrives in the strength of the river, to be thrown into the wilderness and to become meat for the beasts and the fowls of heaven. Isn't it interesting that as God spoke to the prince of Tyre, he used water analogies to show the devastating effects of his sin. That the king of Tyre would drown as those that went from the ports of the city of Tyre were drowned in the sea when a great storm would come. And so... He was placing the judgment of Tyre um, in, a, in a context in which that king would understand. In much the same way here, God places the judgment of Egypt in a manner that they would understand. Look at verse 4. God says, But I will put hooks in thy jaws, and I will cause the fish of thy rivers to stick unto thy scales, and I will bring thee up out of the midst of thy rivers and all the fish of thy rivers shall stick unto thy scales, and I will leave thee thrown into the wilderness, thee and all the fish of thy rivers. Thou shalt fall upon the open fields. Thou shalt not be brought together nor gathered. I have given thee for meat to the beasts of the field and to the fowls of the heaven. So like they would do with a fish, they would pull the fish out of the water and throw it into the wilderness when it was a rejected fish, if they didn't want that fish, so too God would do to them. And in doing so, in saying it that way, God knew Egypt would understand. They were going to be pulled away from their pride, from that which they believed to be their own, from the river that was their lifeblood, and they were going to be left to rot and picked apart in the wilderness. There was coming a day, and it would be in a matter of uh, a short time, when Israel would begin to conspire with Egypt against Babylon. Egypt was convinced it had the strength to oppose Babylon, and God is telling them here, 
that they are greatly mistaken. And so God tells them in verses 6 and 7 that when they find that their strength could not help Israel in any way, when they break under the strength of Babylon, on that day they will know God's word is true and that Jehovah is the God of gods. Verse 6, And all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because they have been a staff of a reed in the house of Israel. When they took hold of thee by thy hand, thou didst break and rend all their shoulder. And when they leaned upon thee, thou breakest and made us all their loins to, to be at a stand. So in other words, when Israel tried to lean on Babylon for, or, uh, on Egypt for strength against Babylon, Egypt would break. Babylon would be victorious in their great strength. And so as God continues, He tells them in verse 9, The land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste, and they shall know that I am the Lord, because He hath said, The river is mine, and I have made it. Because of the pride of this Pharaoh, because he thought the river was his and not God's, because he exalted himself against God, God says He will be made desolate as will His nation. God tells them that from the Syene Tower, which is in the north of Egypt, and to uh, Ethiopia, on the very south of their land, it would become a wasteland, scattered, as the nation itself lies in ruins. And this judgment, this desolation that God promised against Egypt was to last 40 years. Look at verse 11. No foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, neither shall it be inhabited Forty years. Forty is a number that should pique your interest when you read it in the Bible. We see the number 40 come up several times. It's a number of preparation. It's a number of judgment. It's a number of purpose. We see Moses having spent 40 years in the wilderness in preparation for taking the nation out of Egypt. We see Israel spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness. David reigned for 40 years in Israel. Solomon reigned for 40 years in Israel. This number 40 comes up many times. All having to do with God working out His purposes. Oftentimes with judgment. Sometimes with preparation. Here we see that. God working out His purpose in, in Egypt. 40 years of judgment. 40 years of desolation. And he tells them in verses 13 through 16 how following these 40 years, the nation will again come together, but not with the strength that had characterized the empire for so long. And in doing so, God would ensure that this base nation coming together without strength, coming together without authority, he wanted to ensure that the nation of Israel would never again feel comfortable looking to Egypt for help. God says, I will basically, He says this, I will weaken you to the point where Israel will never look to you again. Where Israel will never even be tempted to look to you again. And that was His purpose. Thus God tells them in verse 16, And it shall be no more the confidence of the house of Israel, which bring, bringeth their iniquity to remembrance when they shall look after them. But they shall know that I am the Lord God. So ends the first prophecy against the nation of Egypt. We're about to jump 
way ahead in time. We're about to jump, in fact, to the final prophecy of Ezekiel's life, beginning in Ezekiel 29, verse 17. We see many dates given. We see many prophecies given. But in verse 17, we jump all the way from the 10th year to the 27th year of Ezekiel's ministry. 27 years after King Jehoiachin is taken into captivity, Ezekiel is now, well, as he's writing this prophecy, he is 57 years old. The temple had been destroyed by this point. Now in the 10th year, the temple had not yet been destroyed. By the 27th year, the temple had been destroyed for some 20 plus years. And in this prophecy, Ezekiel sees and records the final results of all of those promises that God had made toward the heathen nations. Look with me in verse 17. It came to pass in the 20th year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, which is a different rendition of the same name. Now, you notice it's not Nebuchadnezzar, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that's just because of what's happening in the, in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Um, it's not a mistake. It, it's just a different rendition of the same name. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was peeled. Yet had he no wages nor his army for Tyrus for the service that he had served against it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he shall take her multitude and take her spoil and take her prey. And it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor wherewith he served against it because they wrought for me, saith the Lord God. Tyrus had just been destroyed. Last week we looked at the prophecy promising Tyrus' destruction. It's now been some 17 years since that prophecy was given and now Tyrus has just been destroyed. Babylon has gone through and they have wiped out that city as God had promised they would. But God says, you know, Tyrus didn't give a whole lot of spoil to Babylon. And Babylon has done me a great service in destroying this wicked city. So I'm going to now allow them to go down to Egypt and to spoil Egypt. And that spoil of the Egyptians, which will be great, will be their wages, their payment by me for spoiling Tyre. And that is the promise that God gives here shortly before Egypt is destroyed. Notice verse 21. In that day will I cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give thee the opening of the mouth in the midst of them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, we see here what we've seen all throughout the book of Ezekiel. Promise of judgment. Promise of judgment. Promise of judgment against Israel, offering Israel hope. Here we have promise of judgment against a heathen land, and what comes with it? The contrast, right? Between the utter judgment of Israel and the hope and the restoration, excuse me, the utter judgment of Egypt or the heathen lands and the hope and the restoration of God's people Israel. That God will cause them to bud again. You never see 
judgments. Prophecies against the heathen. You never see prophecies against Israel without hope for God's people. Praise the Lord for that. We continue in the 27th year, in the, in the first month and the first day, as we step into chapter 30. God describes the nearness of the destruction for Egypt uh, at this point. Tyre has just been destroyed and Egypt is coming soon. Egypt will fall. Egypt's allies will fall. In verses 13 through 19, God lists all the cities one by one that He will cause to fall through His judgment. And you see in verse 8 the reason why. He says again, And they shall know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt, when all our helpers shall be destroyed. Verse 13, All of these cities that are being listed in 14 and 15, Pathros and Zoan and Sin and No, all of the cities that will be rent, that will be destroyed, that will be judged because of their rebellion and their wickedness before God. Thus ends the next prophecy, the promise of sure judgment having accomplished the judgment of Tyre in the 27th year of Ezekiel's ministry, the 57th year of his life, the final prophecy of his ministry. As we step into verse 20 of Ezekiel chapter 30, we go back in time. We go back to the 11th year, the first month, the seventh day of the month. Sixteen years back to the eleventh year following Jehoiachin's captivity. On this day, God tells Ezekiel that God has broken the strength of Egypt. That though it would be several more years before Egypt would fall to Babylon, it was on that day, sixteen years earlier, that all the strength of Egypt would be spent. Their attempts to command power over Israel would fail and their ability to stand as a world power would be invalidated. God says that the king of Babylon will break the arms of Pharaoh and cause the sword to fall out of his hand while at the same time strengthening the arm of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Notice verse 22. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and will break his arms, the strong, and that which was broken, and I will cause the sword to fall out of his hand. The king of Egypt, the sword will fall out of his hand. His hand will be broken. He'll not be able to fight anymore. Many more years before they will be overthrown, but that was the time when the strength of Egypt was broken. And Nebuchadnezzar was strengthened. In chapter 31, verse 1, we come to our next prophecy. The 11th year, the third month, the first day, a little less than two months later. And this time, as God speaks through Ezekiel, He does so to give the nation of Egypt some perspective. In verses 3-9, through nine, God describes the glory of the nations of Assyria. He describes them as the cedars of Lebanon with fair branches a shadowing shroud, high stature, thick boughs, strong, beautiful, tall, and great. He tells them that the waters had made them great, that they were indeed a strong, strong nation. In verse 7, he says that even the cedars in the garden of God could not hide the glory of the nation of Assyria. 
And indeed, as we look at history, Assyria was a great nation. The Scriptures tell us through Jonah that the Assyrian nation was very large. That their capital city, Nineveh, was so large it was a three-day travel to get through it. That there were 120,000 children in Nineveh. Imagine how many then there would have been as far as people are concerned. Possibly in the millions of people in this city. But when the pride of Assyria finally lifted itself too high, when the people of the land had fallen into such contempt for Creator God that their wickedness abounded unhindered, the Scriptures tell us God brought them into destruction. God says in verse 8, The cedars of the garden of God could not hide Him. The fir trees were not like His boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like His branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto Him in His beauty. I have made Him fair by the multitude of His branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied Him. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because Thou hast lifted up Thyself in height, and He hath shot up His top among the thick boughs, and his heart is lifted up in his height. I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the heathen, and he shall surely deal with him. I have driven him out for his wickedness. And strangers, the terrible of the nations, have cut him off and have left him upon the mountains. And in all the valleys his branches are fallen and his boughs are broken by all the rivers of the land. And all the people of the earth are gone down from his shadow and have left him. God took the glory of the nation of Assyria and made it as nothing. All that trusted in the glory of that once great nation found nothing but ruin in its wake. In verse 16 of chapter 31, God says, I made the nations to shake at the sound of His fall when I cast Him down to hell with them that descend into the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water shall be comforted in the nether parts of the earth. The whole world was shaken by the fall of Assyria. As we read last week about the world being shaken by the fall of Tyre, so too it was with Assyria that they were such an economic power, such a world power, that the world was shaken when Assyria fell. Everything changed on that day. And as God told this story of Assyria, this great nation, this powerful nation, this beautiful nation that one day found themselves utterly destroyed because they exalted their, their strength against God. Notice what God says in verse 18. To whom art thou thus like in glory and the greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the nether parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. God tells Egypt, Assyria was ten times the nation you are. Compared to Assyria, you are nothing. Compared to Assyria, your beauty is ugly. Compared to Assyria, your strength is weakness. So why is it then that Egypt feels like they can exalt themselves above God and be spared the same fate? What is their pride that they would think they could avert the judgment of Almighty God that was placed upon Assyria for their wickedness with Assyria being so much more powerful? So God tells them, Egypt, like the rest, 
would fall before the power of God and the purpose of God. As we step into chapter 32, we come to the 12th year, the 12th month, the first day of the month. With the exception of our brief jump well into the future in 2917 to 3019, we have spanned approximately two years worth of time in chronological order. This final chapter is Ezekiel speaking about Egypt's fall. Prophecy after prophecy had been given. Prophecies of warning, prophecies of promise, prophecies of judgment, prophecies against their pride, prophecies that made it clear God would no longer tolerate their interference with Israel. And now God will describe the utter destruction. And He will say, as we see in verse 10, Yea, I will make many people amazed at thee, and their king shall be horribly afraid for thee, when I shall brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble at every moment, every man for his own life, in the day of thy fall. God speaks of the beasts and the, the flesh being laid upon the mountains, filling the valleys with the height, the water and the blood being mixed together, the destruction of Egypt as he continues in verses 11 through 16, he reiterates that the sword of Babylon shall be their destruction. Notice verse 12. By the swords of the mighty will I cause thy multitude to fall. The terrible of the nations, all of them, and they shall spoil the pomp of Egypt, the pride of Egypt, and all the multitude thereof shall be destroyed. Egypt will fall. And Babylon will be exalted. Notice verse 18. Son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt and cast them down, even her and the daughters of the famous nations unto the nether parts of the earth with them that go down into the pit. This is the final prophecy. One last prophecy began in verse 17. The twelfth year, the twelfth month, the fifteenth day of the month. Fourteen days after the last prophecy. It's meant to declare finally the fate of this nation and all the unbelieving nations of the earth. Continue in verse 19 with me. Whom dost thou pass in beauty? Go down and be thou laid with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of them that are slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword. Draw her and all her multitudes. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with them that help him. They are gone down. They lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Asher is there with all her company. His graves are about him. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the sides of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, which caused terror in the land of the living. God describes them. They will be cast down into hell. Their beauty will come to nothing. They will join the millions who have died in unbelief. Verse 27 says, they won't be destroyed fighting. They will be destroyed in surrender. Verse 32 promises that the terror of God will rest upon them as it had rested upon all of the uncircumcised nations. Now we've covered a great deal of ground today and I covered it very quickly. 
Perhaps you should go back at some point and read through these chapters if you'd like to understand them a little bit more in depth. Much of what is said in these chapters has already been said before in a manner of speaking. We're seeing the parallels between the nation of Tyre, uh, the city of Tyre and the nation of Egypt and the many other nations that God had spoken against because of their attitude and actions against Israel. But I would like us to apply today. And as we think about Egypt, we think about what they were, what they stood for, what they tried to do. They attempted to be a crutch for the nation of Israel. They attempted to help Israel rebel against Babylon. When God had told Israel that you are going to fall to Babylon, don't try to rebel. I'd like us to consider two lessons this evening as we close. The first, true beauty is deeper than your skin. The second, true righteousness is found in Christ alone. Egypt was a nation of beauty and power. And their beauty and their power convinced them that they were somehow different. That they were somehow special. That somehow history did not apply to them. Somehow, they would be able to divert their path away from God's judgment because of their beauty. Somehow, they were going to be able to avoid God's wrath because of their power. And yet God said, look, Assyria was even more beautiful. Assyria was more powerful still. And even their power and their beauty gave them no protection on the day that God worked against them. You know, we have a beautiful and talented nation that we live in as well. The United States is very prosperous and it is indeed a beautiful nation. Great things have come from this nation. Great things come out of this nation. But beauty is deeper than the skin of a nation. When we dig down and we see the fabric of this nation, it's dissolving. And it is only the pride of a nation that believes it can stand and shake its fist against God and not receive the recompense that every nation in history has for doing such. We also have a very beautiful and talented church. Legacy presents itself quite well on any given week. We're small. We're not pretentious. But we're healthy. And we do present ourselves well. But that presentation will avail us nothing as a church if we are not inwardly righteous. If the fabric of our church is not rooted and grounded in righteousness according to the Word of God. We have some beautiful and talented people in this church. Physical beauty. Physical capabilities. But all of that beauty, all of that ability will avail us nothing if it is not founded upon righteousness. 
we began our message today by saying that we needed to pray before our service because anything that we do that is spiritual needs the help of God. Because the only thing that bears spiritual fruit is that which bears spiritual fruit, right? Because it is only the things done in the Spirit that will matter for eternity. See, it's not whether or not you're singing or playing piano or whether or not you look good on Sunday or whether or not you contribute to the church in some meaningful way if it is not compelled by righteousness, if it is not compelled by obedience, if the undergirding of our actions is not obedience and righteousness and spirit-filled Christian living, then it will avail nothing on the day that it's accounted for. See, one day we're going to die. One day this church will be no more. One day this nation will be no more. And on that day, it's not our talents and our beauty and our public face that is going to make the difference for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 tells us this, And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, your beauty will fade. Your strength will diminish. But your labor for God and His kingdom will abide forever. That's good news. We look at a nation like Egypt and we see how they were destroyed as they exalted themselves in beauty. And that shouldn't surprise us because it happened in Tyre and it happened in Assyria and it's going to happen in Edom and Moab and Babylon and Persia and Rome all throughout the history of the world. Each one of these nations as they exalted themselves against God, though they were beautiful, yet they fell. Though they were beautiful, yet they crumbled. It's going to happen in our nation. Though it is beautiful and it has been beautiful, yet it will fall, it will crumble because that's what nations do when they turn away from God. And as we look at this example, we recognize that it's not just nations that will crumble, it is people that will die as well. And the physical beauty that we have will only last as long as the memories of those that have loved us. But what we do for Christ, what we do for Christ on this earth will endure, not just through the generations of those that have pictures of us, not just through the memories of those that met us, but it will endure forever. This afternoon, my little girls didn't get much of a nap. We were at the nursing home. We were doing those things. And then afterward, I had a gentleman that wanted to chat with me for a little bit. We did that. And you know, the girls are having kind of a rough night tonight. And they didn't get much of a nap. But you know what? That's okay. Because they'll sleep tonight. They'll get caught up. They'll be alright, and they won't be the worse for wear. But what happened this afternoon at Parkview Care Center will endure forever. The spiritual fruit that was planted there in that brief little hour that we had with those folks will remain. Because the gospel was given, because the word of God went forth, because it was done in the spirit of God, and it will abide forever. That's what matters. That's what lasts. That is what 
is worth it. Little can we know how our labors for Christ will live out in this world. The chain of events that lead to one man's salvation are many, and God doesn't use the great and the mighty all the time. He uses the humble and obedient. So be talented. Be beautiful. Be strong. Be capable. But make sure that what really matters to you is deeper than your skin. Make sure what really matters to you is deeper than your talents. Make sure what matters to you is not what you have, but how you're using it. Because Egypt had the beauty. Egypt had the strength. And like Assyria, and like Tyre, they used it to exalt themselves against God. And all that strength and all that beauty is now nothing more than a history book. True beauty is deeper than your skin. Second, true righteousness is found in Christ alone. I mentioned Christ in passing. Perhaps with this group I can, but let us never forget the reason why it is we have any true beauty at all. What do I mean when I say true beauty is deeper than your skin? What do I mean when I say it's rooted in righteousness? Well, it's not rooted in your righteousness. I can tell you that right now. When I tell you that your beauty is rooted in righteousness, I'm not telling you it's rooted in the good things that you do. I'm telling you it's rooted in the one who you have accepted. The one who has become your righteousness. When the world speaks of beauty that is more than skin deep, they speak of some code of morality perhaps. It's often trivial, contradictory, and definitely subjective. A person's beauty is based on their acts of kindness, their mindset of benevolence. That a person can form true beauty in themselves through a mindset or through actions. That if we as a society can teach enough good things, then everyone can be good and we'll have a beautiful society again. But that's not true beauty. Just as true beauty is not what we see in the skin, true beauty is not necessarily rooted in some arbitrary moral code that we keep. Unless our words and our actions are backed by the weight of spiritual effectiveness, we will find in them no lasting value and no lasting success. We know Isaiah 64, 6 very well. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. This verse tells you that you have no beauty in yourself. Not a bit. That the very best you can conjure up in yourself is nothing but a cheap copy of that which is real. In yourself you have no goodness. You can do good things. You can be kind. I'm encouraging my daughters right now to learn kindness. Things like not biting your sister, not tackling your sister, not pulling your sister's hair, not doing something to your sister, fill in the blank. They can do all of those things, but... You know, there's no true beauty in it yet. It's still done in the flesh. It's more or less conditioning at this point. Forming in them a conscience that will help them respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ one day. 
We can do these good things. We can be kind. We can be friendly. We can give money. We can be helpful. But the very best of all that we have pales in comparison to what God has designed you to be. And this is because each one of us is a sinner. And as sinners, we've fallen short of true goodness and true beauty. Because true goodness and true beauty is found in God alone. And we know Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, because we're sinners, our end will be one of death. And all that we can do on this earth will be nothing more than earthly memories whether socially acceptable or unacceptable, whether socially good or bad. See, until the day that God sent His Son to die for you and to do for you what you could not do yourself, there was no hope. But on that day, Jesus Christ took the ugliness of your sin upon Himself so that you could be truly beautiful. And it wasn't through your own abilities, and it never will be. But it's through Christ's own sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. For those who accept Christ, we become righteous before God in Christ. Our sin is removed. We are given a beauty that will last throughout eternity. And so God says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How is it that we receive this beauty unto ourselves? A beauty not rooted in ourselves but rooted in Christ. A righteousness not found in our own works but in the finished work of Jesus Christ so that one day we might be presented before God holy and unblameable and and unreprovable in His sight so that one day we can stand before God and He can look at everything that we did in our lives and we can still, by some miracle of God's love, hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. See, because if you just reviewed the last 48 hours of my life, there would be no way my actions would deserve a well done, thou good and faithful servant. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Belief on Jesus Christ, the humble accepting of who Jesus is and what He has done for us when God sent Him to die on the cross. The recognition that Jesus arose again from the grave the third day in victory over sin and death. The acceptance of Jesus' life and teachings as the true Word of God. And the Scriptures say, whoever will do this will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, I'm speaking to most in this room who are believers. I hope the Gospel never gets old. But if you are not, is tonight the night you recognize you need to be saved? if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, is tonight the night that you understand your need, understand your ugliness before God and the need to be clothed in the beauty of Christ's righteousness? But I speak also 
to believers, and I speak in many ways primarily to believers. Young ladies, Proverbs 31 tells us, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. The writer of that proverb knew full well that beauty, in earthly terms, is only skin deep. Now, it's not wrong to want to be a beautiful woman, but society's concept of beauty is a far cry from God's. We've mentioned already, men, women, be strong, be beautiful, be capable, be talented, but don't let your beauty or your talent or your capabilities, or your strength, be what defines you. Because if it is what defines you, then you are at risk of exalting yourself above God, as Egypt did, who sought the very definition, their very existence in their strength, in their beauty, which was nothing in the eyes of an Almighty God. Find your purpose. Find your satisfaction. Find your contentment in that which was done on the cross. Do you remember last week as we were speaking about Satan and his fall, we went to Luke and we talked about Jesus Christ in Luke 10 as He sent out the 70 and they came back and they were rejoicing in all that they did through the name of Christ. And Jesus Christ said those words, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. Rejoice not that you've been given power over these demons, but rather rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, do you want to find that purpose, that meaning, that thing that makes you beautiful? You don't have to go any farther than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't have to go any farther than the, the length that God goes to see beauty in you. He looks at you and He sees His Son and He says, that's beautiful. He looks at you and He sees the blood of Jesus Christ and He says, forgiven. He looks at you and He sees His Son's submission and He says, blameless, unreprovable unrebukable in my sight. And you need not ask for anything more than as you live out your life, you are living your life in such a way that you are magnifying the, spirit, uh, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God that is in you. That you are displaying the fruit of the Spirit so that all that look at you see God in you. And so it's not going to be about what you look like on the outside. And it's not going to be about what you can or can't do in your talents and abilities. And it's not going to be about those things. It's going to be about how you're using what God has given you for His glory. And it will be beautiful. And may I encourage you this evening to see the dangers of Egypt's definition of beauty.
and to understand the contrast between what Egypt thought and what God thought. Let's pray together.